Volume Three, Chapter Fourteen of Mr. Hogarth's Will. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Mr. Hogarth's Will by Catherine Helen Spence. Volume Three, Chapter Fourteen. Meeting. Jane Melville was very much surprised at the extraordinary news that Elsie wrote to her with regard to Mrs. Peck's revelations to herself and Mr. Brandon. Though she was quite prepared for a very interesting letter on their own private affairs, she felt this touch her still more nearly. She was sorry that Elsie had written to Francis on the subject without consulting her, and that she had to wait a whole month before she could assure him that this confession made no difference in her feeling of regard and affection toward him, or in her pride in his career, saying that she hoped he was now satisfied that he was the son of honest and loving parents, though unknown ones, rejoicing that he had got quit of such a mother as Mrs. Peck, and expressing the pleasure with which she read his speeches, and her interest in the objects with which he had in a measure identified himself. She tried to think that all was with them as before, and that, though no longer his cousin, she might continue to be his affectionate and sympathizing friend. Elsie's marriage gave to her sister great and unmixed pleasure. It took place very shortly after Brandon had obtained her consent, and Emily and Jane went to Melbourne to act as bridesmaids, and Edgar, too, was needed on such an occasion as this. Although there were twenty miles between Wirrwilta and Barragong, the sisters contrived to see a good deal of each other. Mrs. Phillips was kinder and more cordial to the Melvilles than before, and now Elsie had an ascertained position as Brandon's wife, even Miss Phillips could not condescend quite so much to her. During Brandon's honeymoon, Dr. Grant had got matters in such excellent train that he made his proposal in due form, and was accepted, but there could not be such promptitude in carrying it out as in Brandon's case, for he could never think of taking a lady of Miss Phillips's pretensions to Ben Moore without making considerable additions and improvements on it, and the masons and carpenters were very slow about their work. The pangs occasioned by delay were sweetened by frequent and long visits, and the plan of his house, and of the garden which he was laying out and planting, was constantly in the hands of the betrothed lovers for mutual suggestions and admiration. At last the day was fixed, and it was to be a very grand affair. There was to be a special license, and she was to be married from her brother's house, as there was no English church within reasonable distance. The Lord Bishop of Melbourne was to come out to perform the ceremony, and all the neighbours from far and near were invited, the Ballantines and some of their town acquaintance besides. There were to be thirty-five at breakfast, and little or nothing could be had from town, so there was an extraordinary amount of cooking going on at Wirriwilta. Mrs. Bennet, who was worth any two of the women servants in the house, was going hither and thither, and surpassing herself in her culinary successes. Emily was instructing Harriet how she was to behave on the following day as bridesmaid, for the two little girls were to support their aunt on the trying occasion, and after officiating in that capacity at the marriage of her favourites, Brandon and Alice, Emily felt quite experienced on the subject. Their dresses were very pretty, and as for Miss Phillips's, it was magnificent, for she thought, if there ever was an occasion on which one should be richly dressed, it was on an occasion like this. Mrs. Phillips had been persuaded for once to allow her sister-in-law to outshine her, at least so far as she could do so. Jane was as busy in the kitchen as any one. When she was called away by Miss Phillips, to be consulted as to how her veil should be disposed of, for Mrs. Phillips had declined to give an opinion, and there were two modes of arranging it that she was doubtful about. 
Could not Miss Melville settle that naughty point? I really cannot say. One seems to me to look as well as the other, said Jane. That is very unsatisfactory, said Harriet. I know they are not equally becoming. Elsie will be here this evening, said Jane, or early to-morrow morning, and I am sure she will be most happy to give the last touches to your dress. Her taste is good, and you know how wretched mine is. Well, I suppose I must trust to that, but I should prefer to have everything settled to-day, so that my mind might be quite easy. I should not like to look flurried to-morrow. I must ask Dr. Grant when he comes in. Perhaps he will give me an idea. Your sister's dress was very simple, she told me, but then the affair was so hurried, there was no time to make preparations. We have not that excuse, thanks to these tiresome tradespeople. But Alice and Brandon seem to get on very comfortably. Very happily, I think, said Jane. Oh, yes, he's good-natured enough, and I dare say very kind to her, and she seems quite satisfied. But I have been just thinking how difficult it would have been for me to have been suited in such a colony as this, if I had not been so fortunate as to meet with Dr. Grant. Being a professional man, he is necessarily an educated man, and you know how much that weighs with me, and he has the manners of a gentleman, which are also indispensable to my happiness in marriage. None of your rough, boorish bushmen, who can only talk of sheep and cattle, could possibly have done for me. Then his family connections are most unexceptionable. My own relations cannot feel in any way compromised by such an alliance. The near neighbourhood, as I suppose it must be called, to Wiriwilta, and even to Barragong, makes it very pleasant. I should not have at all liked marrying to be at a distance from my brother and his family. Coming out, as I did on their account principally, it would be dreadful for all of us if we were separated. I am sure I am quite pleased, too, to have your sister and Brandon as neighbours. Alice looks quite a different person now she has a house of her own. I don't call her pretty, I never did, but she looks very well indeed at Barragong, and seems to get on wonderfully well, considering. Considering what? was about to come from Jane's lips, for she had never liked Miss Phillips's condescending way of talking about her sister. But she checked herself, for it was of no use to argue with the bride on the evening of her wedding-day, and gave an indifferent and conciliatory reply. But the conversation was here interrupted by the entrance of two old friends, not any of the party invited for the morrow, but two large, beautiful dogs, who ran up to Jane with the wildest expressions of canine delight. "'Oh, Nep! Oh, Flora!' said Jane. "'Where have you come from? Who can have brought you here? Poor old fellows! Dear old fellows!' And the favourites from Cross Hall laid their happy heads in her lap and rejoiced in their old mistress's caresses. "'What beauties!' said Miss Phillips. "'But I do not like dogs in the drawing-room.' "'I will take them out,' said Jane, trembling with wonder and agitation. She went out of the room, and at the hall-door, which stood, bush-fashioned, hospitably open, she saw Frances standing, allowing Nep and Flora, who seemed to know there was a friend in the house, to make an entrance and introduce themselves. She extended her hand, but he clasped her in his arms. "'Not farewell this time, dearest Jane. I have come for you, and I will not be refused. When we parted I said you knew I loved you, and now I believe you love me. I have given up everything—the property, the seat in Parliament—and now that I have no career to relinquish, perhaps you will acknowledge that you love me?' "'Oh, Francis! I have always loved you. But I could have lived without you all my life if I had thought it for your good and your happiness. I could not bear to be your stumbling-block. But is it really the case? Did you believe that strange story? Have you given up what you made such good use of? Come out into the garden with me, and I will tell you all about it. 
and Francis led Jane where they were more secure from interruption. Flora and Nep followed them in the greatest exuberance of spirits. I had to stay one day in Melbourne, and found that I could get a situation there as accountant in a merchant's office, at three hundred pounds to begin with. I had Mr. Rennie's testimonial to speak for me. It is not so much as my fifty pounds in Edinburgh, but will you marry me on that? said Francis. I would marry you on less, said Jane, for my own part of it, but you care for more comfort and luxury than I do. If you will consent to be cheerfully without what we cannot afford, I will do my best. I have been roughing it a little on board ship. You may ask Peggy and Mary Forrester if I have not. But I hope to get on, for your sake, if not for my own. I feel just like a boy again beginning the world, and feeling it is all his for the winning. But your plans, your ambitions, are they all given up? You know the property was really yours, as much yours without a name as with my uncle's. I am sorry you were so rash. No, Jane, don't be sorry. Don't be anything but very glad. I never was so happy in all my life. I left all my regrets on the other side of the world. Now, when I have your hand in mine, your heart in my keeping, when you have promised to give yourself to me, I will not feel that I have cause for anything but devout gratitude to our Heavenly Father, and humble but confident hope that He will bless our union. My dearest love, do look in my face and say you are happy. Yes, I am happy, said Jane, very happy. Thank God for all his goodness. But what are we to do for a name? I ought not to be Hogarth or Ormistown or Francis either. Can you give me a new name to begin our new life with? I think we will still call you Francis Hogarth. It is the name I learned to love you by, and I think if my poor dear uncle saw us now, and saw how we love each other, he would be pleased that my husband should have his name. Then you have really given up everything? said Jane who could not at once believe in the fact. To the benevolent societies, but they behaved very handsomely, and gave to me, or rather to you, a sum of money sufficient to better our position. I have not only the three hundred pounds a year, I have twenty-five hundred pounds besides, and a lot of things from Cross Hall to furnish the cottage with. I had to leave the horses, but I thought you and Elsie would like the dogs. Susan helped to pack the furniture, and I have brought her out to go into your service in any capacity. I suppose we can afford to keep one domestic on our small means, even in Melbourne. I suppose the rest of the establishment were sorry to lose a good master, said Jane, and the labourers, too. What about your arrangements there? The cottages were built, and the allotments made over securely, and I think they are the better, and not the worse, for my two years' tenure at Cross Hall. As for the political and social reforms, I have no doubt that there are five hundred men in England as good as me. Sinclair is as good an apostle of my crotches as I could be, only he is not in the house. I will not be so insincere as to say that I did not give up my parliamentary life with the greatest regret. That really was the sacrifice. You must be very, very kind to me on that account, but you know that I could not, as an honest man, keep property which had been bequeathed to me under such a mistake. You would not have done it under the circumstances. I tried to save it for you, to whom it ought to have been left, but after consulting the best authorities, I found I could not do so, for your uncle's will was so distinct in excluding you from any benefit from his estate. So, Jane, you must say that you are glad. Don't look at me as if you were anything but my guiding star, the life of my life, all the world to me. A hindrance, a stumbling-block. Without you I should have had no high aims, no noble ambition. If I had done little or nothing, I have learned a great deal, so— Love me for the sake of what I am, and not of what I do. 
"'You know that I will be only too happy to be your wife, Francis,' said Jane. "'And perhaps if I get on well here I may go into political life in the colony, and do the work I was sent into the world for at the other end of it. Then when are you going to give yourself to me?' "'As soon as I can possibly leave this family. We must let Mr. Phillips know immediately. How surprised Elsie will be!' "'Not so much as you are, I fancy. Bless her for writing me that letter. There is not one of yours that I prize more. But with regard to the Phillipses, Miss Mary Forrester, I think, would be very happy to take your place, and from all I can see of her she will do admirably. Did you really want me to fall in love with her?' "'I wanted you to be happy, and I thought she could make you so.' You do not understand how unselfish a woman's love can be. Then, if Miss Forster can take my place here, there need be no delay. You make none on your part, like a good, honest girl, as you are. Why should I? We have loved each other for two years. Our wedding will be the simplest affair possible. Why should I pretend to wish to delay what will be my happiness as well as yours? Oh, Francis, though I could not have wished you to make the sacrifice you have made for my poor sake— Yet, now that it is done, it is not a half-heart I give you. I will try to give you no cause to regret what I have cost you. Oh, how glad I am to be able to tell you frankly how dear you are to me! End of Volume 3, Chapter 14